Now that we're getting back on the road, the stops we make seem more special than before. Stop to see a friend. Stop at your favorite store. Stop at the places you missed most. And to keep you going between those stops, there's Shell. Stopping to fill up with our best fuel ever. Save with the Fuel Rewards program. And to get snacks and essentials that can save you even more at the pump. That's just a few of the ways Shell helps you make the most of the stop you need to make. See full terms and conditions at FuelRewards.com. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past, present and emerging. Happy almost new year. How exciting. And belated Merry Christmas to you all. And a Merry Christmas to you all and to all a good day. Uh, wow! We're on our first episode of Northern Territory. It's amazing. Jess and I did a check-in before we recorded and we're both, we're between a 6.5 and a 7 on, on the 1 to 10 scale. Yeah. So I feel, as I've said, like, I feel like my mood is a bit heightened because I am still a bit manic, but I've also gotten to the angry stage of this heartbreak I'm in the middle of. So rock on. That's that's a lot of energy. Like that fuels you, that gives you power. Yeah. Like it's better than the depression phase when you're just lying down, like eating. Um, it's more like, yeah, I'm going to prove him wrong. Right? Big mood. Um, I downloaded this new app called Pattern, which is a app that sort of – goes through your entire astrological chart and tells you what's wrong with your life. Um, it's very real. Um, it's ex- And also I'm coming to learn that exactly what everyone's been saying about like the new year with like people that like from your dating past like slowly like start to climb out of the bin and send you messages. Been dealing with that for the last two days. So like my self-esteem is feeling pretty good, you know, like – I don't know. I think, I, look, I was having a big chat with my friend Hannah, as well as it being a new year, the new moon's out at the moment. So it's a time for reflection and it's a time mm-hmm. for regrouping. And then I feel like 2020 is just going to be our year, you know, Ellen? I, I definitely agree with you there. Um, I have said that about every year since about 2011. But one one year I'm going to say it, it's going to be true. Yeah. I'm going to come into this year with a bunch of optimism, you know? Yeah, I'm going to come into this year with a bottle of um, Jacob's Creek Rosé that I've got to finish before it goes flat. Look, big mood. Big, big, big mood. Um, We have, speaking of optimism, very optimistic about our new Patreon, Heather! Hey, Heather doll. Hi, Heather. I love the name Heather. What's your damage, Heather? I've never seen that movie. I just like it independently. You've never seen Heather's. I know. I've never seen any movies or TV shows, and it I've was never after, listened to a song. It was after Star Wars. Like it's a real movie on your sca- on your grand scheme of things. Yeah, I know it's a real movie. It's just not a movie that I've seen. It's got Winona in it. I do love Winona Ryder. I feel like her and I have a vibe. Like I feel like we're on a wavelength. You definitely have Princess of Darkness vibes with Winona Ryder. Definitely. Mm. It's just me, Winona, and like Morticia Adams just out here. Living a spooky life. Yes, killing it with a capital K. Speaking of murder. Speaking of murder, 
Welcome to the first episode of the Northern Territory season. Um, gonna be honest, I completely forgot we were recording this week because we're at that weird time of year after Christmas and before New Year where I have no idea what's going on. So Time's I not real. Mm, time is merely a concept. Um, so I had started the episode, by the way. I'm not going to say like I was fully like not prepared, but I just, it, it, it it's come together quite quickly over the last couple of days. Okay. So we're doing our best. Um, <clears throat> of course I pick like quite the, the chunky, com- the, the chunky one to go first, other than also we need to discuss this on air. Probably we should have talked about this before. When are we doing Lindy Chamberlain? Are we going to close with Lindy? Yeah, but that was going to be like a fun surprise. Okay, well, no, surprise! <laughs> that was going to be like, what's our final case going to be? People Drum will roll, forget please. By then. Hopefully. That's in like, that's in like quite a few months. Yeah. That'll be like two months down the track. It takes us a while to pump these bad boys out. Yeah, exactly. Because um, we're like, okay, start the episode, forget about it for a week and a half. Yeah, and then smash I'll, it out in fuck, two and a half days. Fuck, we've got... <laughs> yeah. Not in your case. You're way more prepared than I am. But um. I just have a like a mental problem. <laughs> Alrighty. <clears throat> so the case that I've decided to open with um, is one. This was quite a formative time in our lives. Like 2001, we were what eight, nine? Y- yeah, yeah, eight. Um, I remember this case really vividly, mainly because of the. Um, there's like an Im- there's a quite famous image from this case. Um, and, um, one of the people involved, like she had quite an iconic look that I remember Ooh. really strongly. Um, we love a look. We love a look. We love, I love a strong brunette Bob vibe. Um, so the case that we're going to be opening with today, as you'll probably guess from the title of this will be, uh, the murder of Peter Falconio. So... I just realized, sorry, I just realized why you messaged me in a panic today being like, wow, the case file episode. You said like, case file really goes on. And I was like, why is Jess messaging me about another podcast? And now I realize I've also listened to this episode of case file. Yeah. And it was also a chunker. No, because like I was just trying to get like, uh, trying to get an idea of like timeline and like how I should like do this. And I was like, oh, look, I'll have a quick listen to case file. We're morons um, if we don't. Like, yeah. he's already, like, you know. He's already done the hard yards. And fucking hell, that guy goes on. He starts the whole episode with, like, the fucking uh, I love a sunburnt country. I was like, come the fuck on. And the other really interesting thing about the case file episode about this case is that they started talking about the murderer first before the victim. Mmm, interesting. Which I was like, hmm, okay, weird vibe. But anyway, let's start. Cool. Uh, Peter Falconio was born on the 20th of September, 1972 in Hepworth, West Yorkshire in England. Oh, West Yorkshire, West the finest Yorkshire. of all the Yorkshires. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the Yorkshire accent in the Secret Garden movie. Oh my God, yes. God, that movie Why do hard. I have a mental link in my head between Yorkshire and pies? Oh, I'm thinking of Yorkshire, Yorkshire pudding. pudding. Never mind. <laughs> I'm like, Yorkshire just reminds me of pies and I don't know why. It actually reminds me of pudding. I bloody love a Yorkshire pud. Um, oh, me too. <clears throat> oh, rock on. Um, so, as I said, West Yorkshire in England, uh, he shared a close relationship with his family. Um, he was known as the class clown and had many friends. Uh, he, after finishing his um, like high school career, he studied a diploma in building construction. Uh, he then went on to work as a surveyor and uh, bought a small cottage nearby his family home. 
1996, he met Joanne Lees. Uh, Joanne was born on the 15th of September, 1973. Uh, Joanne's family was not very well off. So from a really early age, she was uh, independent and she was considered wise beyond her years. Um, so after she had finished her studies, like she did high school and then she studied her A-levels, but she didn't go on to university. She um, started working at a uh, travel agency. Um, so Peter, basically, he was known as like a bit of a dreamer. He had ambitions of what he wanted to do. So he decided that he was going to go and study at Brighton University. So the first year of their relationship, um, Peter would be driving back um, to Hepworth to see um, Joanne. They were in an LDR. Yeah, yeah, LDR. Oh, my gosh. For the millennials out there, you know? For the Rock teens. On. For the teens. It's an LDR. We are very hip and we know lingo. LDR, Jesus. Um, so then Joanne was, you know, she liked where she lived. Um, her mother was um, quite ill. Um, so she, it was a really hard decision, but then she decided that she was going to move to Brighton. Um, just was going to continue and got a transfer with the travel agency that she was working with. Um, so then in 1998, Joanne and Peter began planning this um, like world trip, this dream trip of theirs that they wanted to do. Um so then they began telling their families of their travel plans and ideas. And obviously um, their families were like a bit anxious because of um, the the, time, the place where they were going to be spending the most of their time would be in Australia. So um, the reason why they were a little bit about it was um, the recent backpacker murders, which we have already talked about, um, Port Arthur um, massacre. And then also something I didn't know about was the Childers Backpacker Hostel fire which I don't know enough about, but going to have a look. But Childers is, um, it's a it's a bit far out of Brisbane. Um, there's a lot of farms around there. so um, It's it would massively be... far out of Brisbane. Well, I had a friend from primary school whose like family farm was on Childers. So I just, I and she would go like every weekend. So to me, like, anyway. Um, so Childers is like a, hmm? oh, Zane's from Childers. Oh, Zane's family's in Childers. Good for them. Oh, my God. So much fruit. But anyway, so Childers <laughs> has um, lots of farms. So obviously, oh, God. <laughs> Ellen, cool it. So much fruit. <clears throat> so much fruit. Way more fruit than I've ingested this year. Um, obviously, a lot of backpackers would go out to Childers in the farm areas because they'd have like uh, fruit picking jobs, which were popular. Mm-hmm. It still are popular with, um, you know, travellers that come to Australia because it's, you know, cheap labour for the people and, um, you know. Anyway, um, so, yeah, their friend, their family was, like, a little bit, like, I don't know if that's a good idea. But anyway, so they were just like, fuck it, we're going. So the 15th of November, um, Peter and Joanne departed on their trip. So they travelled through Nepal first, then Singapore, then Malaysia, Thailand, and then Cambodia. And then I can't to- believe they went to all of those places and their family was like, but we're iffy about Australia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Cambodia, nothing bad's ever happened in Cambodia. Well, so what happened was is um, Joanne's uh, traveller's checks and ticket home got stolen while they were in Cambodia. So then they came across someone that helped them get back to Bangkok um, so that they were better equipped to like sort out their issues and get everything yeah. done. Um, so... Uh, after that ordeal, understandably, they were like, ah, maybe we should like go home. But they were like, no, 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 we're going to continue on. We're going to go to Australia like we've always said we're going to. 
So then uh, the 16th of January, 2001, uh, Joanne and Peter landed in Sydney. Um, so they were – I'm so sorry. I'm burping from my delicious Slurpee. Um, originally they were standing, staying in like a <laughs> – Ellen's laughing at me, but anyway. Um, they were staying in Potts Point in a – uh, like hostel sort of situation, but then they settled into a flat share in Bondi um, where they decided that they were going to set up base. So they were on a um, holiday working visa. So basically that means is that you can work or it might be different now, but back in 2001, it meant that you could work in one place for six months and then go on travel and then you could work somewhere else. Um, mm-hmm. so I've met a few people doing that sort of thing. The thing is like you get taxed quite a bit when you're on those visas so like the there's pay all does- kinds of bullshit yeah, yeah. <clears throat> your pay doesn't actually end up being that great i know there was a girl that i worked with at portman's and she was in that sort of situation and when she said like and like she was on a part-time contract so she was working more than i was and i i was on a casual contract and the amount of money that i was getting in comparison to her i was like Ooh. Ooh, sorry doll sorry doll so drinks on you drink yeah yeah god right um, so then they decided they settled in Bondi where they were going to set up base and they were going to work and they were going to save money and then they were going to travel the country. So um, Peter found a job quite easily. He was working um, in installing uh, office furniture in the Sydney CBD. And then Joanne was struggling a little bit trying to find a job. So obviously she had a lot of experience in travel, like working in a travel agency. But the thing is, like when you're on um, like holiday visas and stuff like that, people in like bigger corporations and like, you know, stuff that isn't like service or hospitality or retail or something are less inclined to hire you because of... Um, they know you're temporary. They basically. know you're temporary and like wasting all that time, like training you and then you're just going to fuck off anyway. Um, so she found a part-time job at Dimmicks. Um, So this was sort of the time for Joanne to like really have fun like she didn't go to university she didn't have that experience that Peter did where you know you'd go out drinking and make a lot of mates and stuff like that like Joanne mm-hmm. when she was back in the UK when she was younger like she was quite secluded um so this she really took this time to like get out of her shell um she made like heaps of new friends and they were partying but like Peter was more focused on like this trip that they were going to be making across mm-hmm. country so he was more focused on securing the vehicle and like working out all of those logistics um but Joanne was really enjoying herself in Sydney and she actually wanted to stay longer so initially they were only going to be there for three months um and but then they ended up extending to about five so what their plans were were to drive from Sydney to Melbourne and then go across to Adelaide and then they were going to drive north to Darwin so from there um from there what their plan was was to go down to Brisbane sell the van that they were going to buy and then they were going to fly over to New Zealand um so like the advice that Peter had been given about you know finding a van for like a trip like this rather than checking the classifieds where people would probably be charging like a lot more money than they were actually it was actually worth um there was this like travelers um like car market so it was like other people that are doing the exact same thing as them and probably like with vehicles that are way more suitable to doing like what the kind of trip Yeah, yeah 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 So Peter goes and he finds this orange combi and it looked really well maintained and had a recent paint job. Um, but the person that wanted to, the person that was selling it wanted like three grand for it. And Peter was like, I'm going to sit with it. So he sat on it for a few days and then ended up buying it for about 1800 bucks. Um, Bagwan. Love that. Why? Am I that funny today? Is it my mania? Yeah, you're always funny. 
funny. This is like offended that I'm laughing at her jokes. No, it's just <clears throat> I've never thought of myself as a very funny person. So all of a sudden all these people laughing at my jokes recently is really funny. I did an amazing Yes, we have a comedy podcast. <laughs> Sometimes. Um <clears throat> So um, Joanne wasn't initially like super stoked on the convi. She was like, uh, kind of, you know, they were going to be driving for really long periods on the dirt roads, but, you know, Peter was really enthusiastic about it. And then Joanne came on board and she was like, yep, no, this is going to be a great time. So then Peter was doing like some changes to the combi, um, like adding in like a lamp for them for reading and then building a shelf to make things a little bit easier for them to store things. So then the 25th of June, 2001, they set off. They're like driving, th- th- uh, they drive from Sydney to Canberra and then Canberra to Melbourne and then they end up in Adelaide. Surprisingly, they actually liked Adelaide. Good for them. Good for you. Um, and then, you know, they're going to do like the whole Barossa Valley, like see where all the wine's made and all that shit, you know? Rock on. Rock on. Raise your wines, everyone. Raise your slurpees. No worries. Um, so They were like, fuck Perth. Yeah, fuck Perth, right? <laughs> they were like, nah, delete that half of the country. Which is a shame because, like, anyway, I'm going to talk a little bit about Western Australia in this episode. Um, <clears throat> we'll never leave it behind. We'll never leave it behind. Never, 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 never. So basically the uh, main stretch of you know, highway that they were going to be worried about. Well, not worried about, but that was before them leaving Adelaide and going to Darwin would be the Stuart Highway. The thing about Australia is that we've got a lot of areas where there's just fuck all. Fuck all. There's fuck all. You would know it's this better just, than I would because you've done like long, yeah, long I've done hauls from in the Brisbane. Car. I've done from Brisbane to Hobart and let me tell you, there was a lot of fuck all. It was also 47 degrees off-brand for me I it was it was awesome like it's so cool and the thing about looking at nothing is that like your brain kind of can't comprehend like the fact that you're like wow I haven't seen a house for seven (laughs) hours like there's so and it's beautiful I mean it's beautiful nothing I mean it's the wilderness it's like it's like what Australia is we've just put shit on there you know like pretty much Seeing the country is actually amazing and they're like on the trip of a lifetime. I'm just like, this is a travel log for me. This is like a this is fascinating. So then um so from Adelaide to get to Uluru or Ayers Rock, but it's called Uluru, um, hmm. is about seventeen hours from Adelaide. Ayers Rock so, if you're a racist. Ayers Rock if you're a racist, Uluru rock the fuck off. If on. you're a normal person. Um so uh, Peter and Joanne knew that once they'd gotten out of like Adelaide and past like the outskirts of the towns that are, you know, in South Australia, that they'd be like little to no radio and like really no mobile phone reception. Um, you know, they went to Uluru, they saw it at dawn. Unfortunately, did they did that white people thing where they climbed Uluru. Not cute. Not okay um, now, but we didn't know that in 2001. Well, we, we didn't know. So then on um, July 11th, after hiking through the Olgas, um, they met a Canadian couple called Mark and Isabel who were wanting to travel to Kings Canyon and um, uh, Peter and Joanne were doing the exact same thing. So they just decided to tag along um, and then they parted ways when they got to Alice Springs. Um, so Alice Springs was the last major stop before um, getting on to Darwin. Um, they dropped the combi off with a, va- with a mechanic just because it was um, like swerving to one side. So they wanted to get that sorted before they do the really, really like hard yards from going from Alice Springs to Darwin. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so they stayed at a caravan park for a couple of nights. Ooh, what's – is there a ghost in your room? No, I'm looking at the map of Australia that I have right here oh. to see how far away Alice is from – Alice Springs is from Darwin. It's quite a way. Mm. It's quite a it's, – it's, it's quite a it's long a drive. Um, so then they stayed at the caravan park for a couple of nights and Peter called his parents to let them know that they were both having fun and they were both good. Um, and that so, they were alive. And that they were alive. Rock on. Um, so they had made a couple of changes to their plan. So what they were, um, that original plan that I told you that they were going to go up to Darwin, then to Brisbane, sell the van and then fuck off to New Zealand. Um, that what they decided was that, um, Peter was going to fly to, uh, uh, Papua New Guinea to go on a walking trip with his friend and then Joanne was going to go back to Sydney and then mm-hmm. they were going to meet up in Brisbane before flying on to New Zealand. Okay, so um, we're at Saturday the 14th of July 2001. Uh, Peter picked up the combi. Um, between about 10.30 to 11, Peter and Joanne went for breakfast. I just realised these people are going to die. I was just getting so into the like, story of their trip. I just realised that. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> One of them is. Oh, shit, that's worse. Um, so after breakfast, Joanne rang her friend Amanda in Sydney to let her know that they were going um, to the Camel Cup races, which is like a once-a-year thing in Darwin, um, once-a-year thing in Alice Springs, and then they were going to be driving on to Darwin. Um, so Peter and Joanne were seen in like video footage at the races and then at the beauty pageant. Um, so then it was about after three when they were sitting at the Camel races and they were like, uh, it's getting pretty late. We're going to be driving through the night on – like a really long stretch of road, better fuck off. Um, mm-hmm. So they went back to the caravan park, they had a shower, got ready, and then hit the road, um, stopping in at Red Rooster. Classic. Classic. Got to get that chicken and gravy roll. Oh, I love Red Rooster chips. They are the superior of the chips. Hungry Jack's new chips, 100%. Hungry Jack's old Hungry chips, Jack's bad. Hungry chips can not, can seriously just not. The new chips, though. I haven't had them. But yeah, the old I haven't had ones in the past year. The new ones are amazing. They're like herby and like so good. Also, mm. Hungry Jack's is the only fast food restaurant with vegetarian and vegan options. So I don't know about all the rest of it. Rock on. Yep. Um, so then um, Joanne and Peter wanted to see the sunrise over Kalu Kalu, which is um, another in, um, indigenous conservation site. Um, they were aware of the dangers of driving at night on the Stuart Highway because there's a lot of wildlife around. Um, it's a really like long stretch of highway there's no lights or anything um it would literally you'd just be going by the light of your headlights so they were prepared to like camp on the side of the road if they had to and they were you know if they were feeling a bit you know iffy um and joanne was already really apprehensive about driving at night because of all the kangaroos and the wildlife that would just come out of nowhere um so joanne did like the first like small leg of the driving and peter fell asleep in uh, the back of the combi um and then they arrived at Thai tree roadhouse where um they got ready to do the switch over shared a joint um while watching the sun go down no worries nice no judgment you do no you, judgment here. you do you it's all good <laughs> Um, so then They're trying so hard to seem cool. <laughs> We're like, totally, bro. You yeah. smoke that J. <laughs> you smoke that green, you know? Yeah, the garnish. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't We're have lame. much experience with illicit drugs. No, me and either. And when I have done it, I it what it didn't agree with me. <laughs> I get stressed out if I take a pen at all rapid. <laughs> oh. I'm not cool, am I? No, me um, either. 
so they arrived, um, So they shared a joint, watched the sun go down, um, then Peter went back to the roadhouse and got fuel and lollies, and the receipt was time-stamped at 6.21pm. So as they were driving along the Stuart Highway, they noticed um, some small fires on the side of the road, and Peter wanted to get out and, you know, find out what was going on, but Joanne was like, nah, let's not, let's just keep going. Um, so 7.30pm, uh, they passed the Barrow Creek Roadhouse, um, but... They were, you know, they just kept on, they kept on driving. Um, so after they passed Barrow Creek and they were further, further on down the line, um, they noticed these headlights were coming up behind them. Um, and this is all recollection from Joanne, by the way. Um, so Peter like slowed down the combi thinking that the guy wanted to like overtake and keep going, but the guy wasn't overtaking. Um, and then the car, the, it was a white four wheel drive with like a green canopy on the back um and he like came up and was driving beside them and was keeping at speed with them and they thought that was really weird and they like looked to their right and they can see this guy on the in the front seat that was like um like yelling and like the words that they could like get from him was sparks and exhaust and was like gesturing wildly to like the back of the the um, back of the combi so then peter slows down and pulled over to the left and then um, the four-wheel drive pulled over as well. So Joanne was a bit worried because she didn't like the look of the guy. Um, so Peter got out of the car and kept the door ajar and he just said, you know, Joanne, just stay inside. Um, so Peter and the other driver were like talking at the back of the car and Peter bent down to look at the exhaust. Um, and Joanne had heard the other driver say to Peter, Peter that he'd seen sparks flying out and Peter said, cheers, mate. Thanks for like letting us know and for actually stopping us. So then Peter like stood up from the exhaust, went back to the driver's side, got like his packet of cigarettes and then went back to the back of the car. So he asked Joanne to like get into the driver's seat and rev the engine and just to see how bad like the sparks were. Um, so Joanne jumped over, um, looked into the rear view mirror and then she got a really good look at the driver, like the other driver. And she was like, okay, cool. So then she revved the engine again and then she heard this really loud bang, which she thought was the, um, like the exhaust backfiring. Mm-hmm. Um, but before she could like look around to like check the back, at the back, um, the guy, the other driver was at the front window and he had a gun pointed at her and he yelled at her to turn the engine off. But she was, you know, obviously really spooked. Um, mm-hmm. So he pushed her across the seat and got into the combi and then turned the car off, like car off himself. So then um, he pushed Joanne all the way over into the passenger seat um, and Joanne obviously was really distressed and was yelling for Peter. Um, and this other driver said, put your head between your, le- put your, head between your legs and uh, put your fucking hands behind your back. So she could feel his gun, which she described as looking like it was silver with like a um, – a wooden handle so it looks like something out of like a western or something like, yeah like, like a cowboy movie mm. um so then she felt this gun at her head and then he and he tied her hands behind her back um with handmade handcuffs um that were made of zip ties and like gaff tape um so he pushed joanne out of the car onto the ground where she was like lying on her front and she was fighting like really hard kicking and screaming and he was trying to tie her legs up Um, And she was fighting, 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 fighting. So he ended up just giving up. And then he punched her directly in the side of her head. Holy fuck. Um, So during this time, it's really unclear because there is a bit of discrepancies as you'll come to like find out between um, what, you know, Joanne said at some point and what she said at other points because, you know, she was punched in the head. So 
you know, she was probably like, – she may have blacked out. She's not too sure. Also, um, what a traumatic thing. Like your brain is not – your brain is not – getting all that information and being like, I need an accurate record of your brain is working so hard to just like survive in that moment that it's not as if your recollection is going to be a hundred percent perfect. And I mean, I'd thank like touch word, like I've never gone through something traumatic as this, but like other traumatic times when, you know, your body just overtakes and is just like, you need to get through this, you know, be Mm -hmm. it like just a, like a really stressful situation. If you do have like anxiety or something like that, Mm because I know I get that where my body is just like, you just need to get through the next five minutes um, yeah. you're in survival mode. Yeah, like. you're in survival mode. Um, so, yeah, Joanne, it's unclear if she blacked out during the attack, but she never saw Pete's body. Um, so the attacker attempted to, like, put gaff tape across her mouth, but because she was fighting so much, it ended up getting stuck in her hair. Um, so he retrieved, like, a black cloth. Um, he retrieved, like, a black a cloth bag, a bag from the back of his car and put it over her head, but through the fight and everything, it came off and whatever. So then he opened the passenger door and shoved um, Joanne under the seat. Um, So she had noticed in the struggle that the attacker had like grey specks throughout his hair. It was quite long and straggly. He had like a long jaw and was like really mean sort of scowl. Mm -hmm. Um, So then the next thing she realises that she's in the back tray underneath the canopy. Um, So she was lying on her side. So she turned onto her back and began and began yelling for Peter again. Um, she heard her attacker say, be quiet or I will fucking shoot you. And at this point, um, she was asking, you know, what was going to happen. She was like, are you going to rape me? Where's Peter? Like, do you want money? Do you want the car? Just like take it and just go. Mm-hmm. Um, and all he said was no. Um, so she could hear like a dragging sound and she could hear like um, his feet uh, on the like, you know, that really rough red dirt and then mm-hmm. just silence. Um, so then she waited a few moments because obviously she's freaking out um, and then she like slid out and like jumped over the edge and she ran and she ran into the wilderness. She fell twice um, and then she just couldn't run anymore. So then there was like all this scrub in the bush. So then she found this like tall, like meter tall like bush and she crawled under it and she like, curled up into a ball um, holy so I- fuck mm. what a wait. legend wait oh wait um so um her hands were still tied behind her back mind you and then he had a torch and was like shining a light through like the scrub and everything also bear in mind this guy had a dog what yeah i forgot to mention that he had a dog in his car i'm so sorry anyway so the poor he dog was, doesn't know that it's, like, participating in a crime. Right, right. So he's got this torch. He's looking around the scrub trying to find Joanne. Um, he walked past her three times and then walked back to the road, slammed the door and then pulled back onto the road. So she thought he was driving away. But instead of driving, he, like, flicked the headlights onto, like, the scrub where she was, like, directly on it to, like, shine a light to see if you could find anything. And he sat there for a little bit. Um, didn't like couldn't find her couldn't see her so then he ended up driving off so obviously she's terrified that this guy's going to come back Mm -hmm. um so the um handmade handcuffs that he had made uh for her were zip ties that were held together by pieces of gaff tape um so she was like trying to um wriggle out like she was trying to get like the like the the tape or whatever Yeah. yeah 
she was trying to get the links to um like loosen you know, loosen or whatever but she couldn't so then what she ended up doing and she actually had to do this in the court case um so she had a, and i tried to do it today and can i say ladies if you're above a 10 i don't think it's possible um because like i could not get so basically what she did i'm going to talk myself through can i hold the mic no i will stand up okay so what she did was oh my god um, we're doing an act out okay no it's just to like talk myself through it so she had her hands behind her back like this uh-huh. well not like this but you can't see so she had her hands behind her back she was sitting on the ground and then yeah. she like got her hands like underneath her bottom uh-huh and then wriggled her legs through one by one and got her hands back to the front Oh, my God. So, it's really, really hard. Like, honestly, dolls with the size of my hips, pick a number between two and ten because I'm not the one. Ha! I feel like I could probably do that. I've got no You could definitely do that. You're so spindly. Um, I am not. I wouldn't call myself spindly, but okay. You're a spindly, teeny tiny little gill. Um, So, yeah. So, she got out. Like, she got her, like, hands back to her front, which is really good for... Look, even if I was capable of, like, doing that manoeuvre, could I do it inside a bush after, like, somebody had murdered my partner, like, basically in front of my eyes? No, I would be crying. Like, I would be crying and waiting for death. If she didn't know if Peter was dead, she never saw his body. Oh. Well, I would still, like, no. My, My brain wouldn't give me that information. My brain wouldn't be like, here's what you can do. My brain would be like, lie down in the fetal position and wait to die. Yeah, pretty much. That's what I would do. So her hands are at her front. She's trying to figure out, she's trying to get the cuffs to get off her wrist because they're hurting. So then she had like a lip balm. She got the lip balm out and then she was like greasing up her hands to like get the, like the cuffs off her wrist. Wasn't working and nothing was working. So she stayed hidden in the scrub for four hours, you know. Obviously, Trying, scared, yeah, yeah. Obviously, this like scared out of her fucking mind because they're in the middle of nowhere. There's no houses, and there's nothing. Like, there's nothing. There's nothing. Like, obviously, scared that this guy's just gonna come back in his car, find her, kill her, you know. Mm-hmm. So then um, she saw. She, you know, she was near the road, so then she could see this truck coming from miles away, and it was huge. It was one of those road train trucks. Road trains, yeah. Big fuck-off truck. And she's like, well, that's definitely not him. Mm-hmm. So she crawled towards the road. She stood up, and she took a t- couple of steps in the road, waving her hands back, and then stepped back at the last minute just so the truck wouldn't, like, hit like, her. her. And then she yeah. was like... And the thing is with road trains is they take a fuck old like fuck off time, time to, to like stop. to stop. Mm-hmm. So it ended up like still going about a k before he could finally come to a stop. She was like running along the side of this um, road train. So this is at like twelve thirty five in the morning on um, the fifteenth of July. So the driver Vince Miller, top boss, fucking bloke, such a great guy. So Vince and his co-driver, who I don't have the name of, I'm so sorry, but they saw um, he saw Joanne like running towards the truck and, you know, he had been scared that he'd run over her, um, you know, and she was like not making much sense of what she was saying, but he could see, you know, she had like marks all over her and that she had duct tape in her hair and then she was wearing, she had these the handcuffs. Like, handcuffs. Yeah. So um, 
da, 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 da. so they helped um get Joanne like out of the the um the zip ties and like getting the tape out of her hair um they removed the load of the truck because she had said that her boyfriend was missing she didn't know where he was um mm-hmm. so they dumped the load and then they were driving around to see if they could find Peter anywhere um so then they're driving 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 they find the combi which is about 80 minutes away from you know where where she um 80 minutes 80 meters away from where they had originally stopped um but when Joanne mentioned that their attacker had had a gun, Vince was like, okay, fuck off. We need to go and get help. Mm-hmm. Um, so then Vince took Joanne to the Barrow Creek Road stop and there's a pub there. It was about 1.30 in the morning and they like it was kicking on them there. People having beeries, like no worries. Um, and Vince like alerted the owner and then the owner rang the police. Um, so Joanne didn't obviously didn't want to go into the roadhouse. There's a bunch of people there. She was absolutely traumatized. But then, mm-hmm. um, lady that worked there made her a cup of tea, and she began to come down, calm down. But she was obviously still like in a lot of shock and really traumatized. Um, so it took the um, police from Alice Springs a couple of hours to arrive. Um, so at about four twenty in the morning, um, they examined Joanne. They took photos and like asked her lots of questions, and then they took her clothes as evidence, um, which is very normal. Um, so they noted that. You know, she was very much in shock. Vince Miller, like, drew up a map to, like, show them where he had found um, Joanne. Um, Joanne described her attacker as a tall man, about 45 years old, with, long, like, long, scraggly hair that was coming out from underneath a black baseball cap. So then at 7 a.m. on the 15th, um, the Northern Territory Police launched, like, a full search for Peter and the gunman. Um, so... Vince was assisting police in looking on the Stewart Highway. Um, So they found a pool of blood which had been covered up with um, like the dirt on the side of the road Um, and DNA testing later on matched that to Peter Falconio. Was Was it covered up on purpose or just like... Yeah, like someone had, no, no, someone had like somebody had actually it, tried to like yeah, cover it over. Cover right. it over. Um and then they also found the orange combi about eighty meters away. Um so it was about eight and it was like driven inland, so it wasn't on the roads, so it was inland and in some scrub. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so it was about eight hours after the attack that um police had set up roadblocks and checkpoints. Um, so obviously a lot of time has passed. So mm-hmm. um, it was entirely plausible that the man had gone underground or was hiding like somewhere quite remote. Um, it was also like possible that he'd already gone into state because of, you know, you know, he had, he had eight hours head start. Yeah, he could have gotten pretty far. Yeah. Um, so the crime scene examiner from Alice Springs went to Barrow Creek Road house um, to examine Joanne and to take extensive photos and videos of her injuries. Um, so for six days, there were extensive searches done um, in the area that surrounded the crime scene. But the only thing of note that was um, found was obviously the blood and then um, footprints of Joanne. Um, I'll bring this up a bit later, but three months after the initial search, um, they found like the lid to Joanne's lip balm. And then they also found um, duct tape as well. Um, so with this original search, um, Aboriginal or uh, Indigenous First Nations uh, trackers were asked to come in to obviously, because they are experts at the land, they know everything about it, they know how, you know, how the the desert works and, um, you know, just they're, you know, very it's incredible. It's super, and, super common in yeah. Australia for any any person that goes missing in the wilderness or anything like that. Indigenous trackers are like almost always brought in. Yeah. And um, 
but there were delays because there was um some there was some other things that they were doing so it took them a couple of days to get to the crime scene um so joanne was taken to the side of the combi to see if like anything was out of place or anything had been taken um and then she was taken to alice springs to like further help with the investigation and obviously to receive like a full medical checkup now the thing is about we're going to get into i'll get a little bit into the initial investigation and how sort of problematic it was but um something that you know this might just be like a thing in the past um but joanne didn't receive any counseling um she didn't receive any like support during this whole thing um and she wasn't like she didn't receive any care Mm-hmm. during this whole like obviously there were people that were looking after her and stuff like that but like in the whole of like dealing with the trauma um and I'll get into that in a little bit as well like she didn't receive any of that she which was is, just kind of left on her own yeah um which isn't cute was she kind of aware at this point that Peter was dead or was there still maybe the hope that he was I think be they found were still alive? I think I think they were still holding out hope that they were going to find him Mm-hmm. Um, just because with the amount of blood that had been found, it wasn't enough to necessarily to, be like he's 100% dead. Yeah, it wasn't enough for them to be like, you know, because in the human body, there's what, like four liters of blood? So there wasn't enough. Eight four liters? Blood? Anyway, there wasn't enough for them to be like, okay, he's for sure dead. Um, Siri, how much so- blood is in the human body? I found this on the web. I'm going to have a pod while Ellen makes this up. <laughs> Our robot will tell us. <laughs> oh, it's equivalent to 7% of your body weight, and the mm-hmm. am- average amount of blood in your body is an estimate because it can depend on how much you weigh, your sex, and even where you live. The average adult weighing 150 to 180 pounds, no idea how much that is, should have about 1.2 to 1.5 gallons of blood in their body. That is equivalent to 4.5 to 5.7 milliliters, so 4 yeah. to 5. There we go. Um, so... The Northern Territory Police were, like, stumped. Yeah. Um, and the thing is with Joanne's story, they sort of... Don't tell me that they didn't believe her. They sort of didn't believe her and found it a little bit unbelievable and they started to doubt that she was telling the truth. She was cable-tied. Um, she was cable-tied. You can't no. cable-tie yourself. We'll get into it. The thing is also... Joanne wasn't given any guidance on how to deal with the media. And the thing with them being UK tourists in Australia and something like this happening, the UK media fucking swept in. Oh, yes. As it would because of what happened with the backpacker murderers, which Mm -hmm. probably what happened with Childers and with Port Arthur. And this this became a sensation. Mm -hmm. She was traumatized. She was by herself. She didn't have any family with her. Um, And... You know, people started to think that she was like really cold and aloof because she, you know, she wasn't. They Lindy Chamberlain like... her. Oh, 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 that's the thing. Victims don't all act the same. Like I know how I react to something is very different to how Ellen reacts. Like the same emotions will be going through our system, but how we inwardly or outwardly show those emotions mm-hmm. is very, very different. The thing is, is that victims are people. They aren't characters in Lifetime movies, so they're not yep. all necessarily going to be weeping and pulling their hair out. They're going to react differently because all human beings are different. And also she's British. Yeah, she's British, British people. Stiff up a lip. Right. you got to get through that Second on. World War. Exactly. So... She was tight-lipped with the media. She wasn't talking to people. And that began to, like, plant a seed of doubt in the media about her involvement in the disappearance of Peter because that's all it was considered at the moment, a disappearance, because they didn't have a body. Um, so about 10 days after the attack, um, Joanne appealed to the media 
she was given a list of questions to answer and she was very like, no, I'm only answering this, this and this. I don't want to talk about Peter because obviously she just didn't want to get too emotional on camera. And that's fucking fair enough because she probably would have... She probably would have fallen apart. The thing was about this press conference is that um, all of Peter and Joanne's possessions were taken in for examination. So she had no clothes, right? So she was given stuff to wear. And she did this um, conference, um, this, you know, media conference. And she was wearing a T-shirt that said Cheeky Monkey on it. And the media went barking ape shit about this T-shirt. Thing was, she didn't have any clothes of her own. So, and she looks like a tizzy gal. Like, I don't she, think she would she have worn She had style. A, mm, I don't think she would have worn a cheeky monkey shirt, but that's what she had to wear. Um, so, obviously, the media, you know, were ignorant to that or just didn't care, so they decided to rip into her about this stupid T-shirt. Um, so, the thing is also with um, what Joanne had told police in her initial interview and with, you know, follow-up questions and stuff like that inconsistencies were starting to pop up as they do with most cases and most victims because you're traumatized you don't know what's going on you're in a you're in a strange country with Mm -hmm. all these like fucked up shit happening like you know there's going to be inconsistencies and we all know anytime you retell a story it changes from the first time you have told it you know Mm -hmm. there are inconsistencies and then there are like blatant lies yeah so um And also, you know, she appeared to have this, like, lack of cooperation with the media because she wasn't, you know, going out and talking to them all the time and stuff like that because, you know, she was terrified. Mm. Um, So from Joanne's description of the crime, it appeared to be one of opportunity and impulse. Um, And the thing is, like, we're in a big area. The description, like, the description she had given and the sketch that had been made of the apparent attacker – could have like People been were anyone. Like, it could have like it really could have been anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so the suspect pool was open to anyone that would have had the opportunity to be on the Stewart Highway really that night. Um, so the, uh, the Indigenous trackers, as we said, weren't able to find any sign of Peter in the area. Um, and then the amended um, there was also an amended sketch of the attacker from Joanne's um, um, description um, that was released with which didn't have the facial hair because it's also really likely that this guy would have changed his appearance mm-hmm. like straight away. Um, blah, 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 blah. So Joanne was assisting the investigation for a couple of weeks, but then she headed back to the UK. Um, but before she left. Um, she was called to the police station to clarify. Like she was told that they needed to clarify a few things in her story. And she was in this. I've seen some video of this. Um, you know, she was called in and she was asked these questions and it becomes really apparent that this isn't just like a clarification of a story and they are full on interrogating her. Mm-hmm. Like full on asking where Peter's body was and like wanting to find. And they were just like, we were wanting to... Um, get closure for Peter's family. I watched today, um, just to, you know, get this stuff fresh in my mind. Um, there is a telemovie about Joanne Lee's and her journey through this whole thing and like obviously about the, you know, the disappearance of um Peter. Peter, yeah. Um so there's a telemovie called uh ba, 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 ba. what is it called? Uh, Joanne Lee's Murder in the Outback, starring Joanne Froggett from Downton Abbey. She plays Anna in Downton Abbey. What a stunner. Mm, Great choice. Um, And this scene where these cops are interrogating her, it's like, wow, 
And then I watched the actual like um, CCTV footage or like the police footage of the interview and it's really fucked up. Um, so then the – so obviously they seized all of Joanne's clothes that she was wearing. So there was this tiny like cut and stain that was on the back of Joanne's shirt. Um, so that allowed police to use like DNA, DNA identification on this tiny brown like smudge mm-hmm. on the shirt which was so far was the only significant DNA profile that they'd found in the investigation. It didn't match Joanne. It didn't match um, Peter or the, her rescuers. So it was a full profile belonging to an unknown male. Mm-hmm. Um, so DNA swabs were taken from inside the combi, but there really wasn't enough um, DNA present to have like a full reliable profile that they could match to the DNA that was on the shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, and they obviously ran the DNA, but um, no one was coming up in the system. So with um, the geographical and social pool of suspects, so the case, you know, was, you know, wide and large. Um, it was, you know, in sometimes with these cases when the, the pool of suspects is quite um, quite small, they do like an appeal for the public to do like a like a donation, I guess, of DNA, like submitting mm-hmm. your DNA. So yeah, that yeah, they submitting could, your DNA, yeah. Yeah, but because of like how many people they were, there were and also the size of... The geographic you know, the area is like... Yeah fucking huge bigger than most european countries yeah so um from the beginning of the investigation they had over like three thousand calls come in so the suspect list was in the thousands um over the next year dna samples were taken from police stations all over the country in order to like find the suspect um they had about 30 to 36 names that they were focusing on um and the other crucial evidence that they were focusing on was this cctv footage that they'd found of a man with a white canopied four-wheel drive at a alice springs police um alice um, springs uh service station um so about five months after the original investigation and they were getting absolutely nowhere um colleen gwynn um, was handed the reins of the investigation. Now, she was a fucking tough as guts bitch. Um, so she had only been back in Alice Springs at the time of the disappearance for about six months because she'd been working in Port Moresby. Um, and they, they were talking about when Colleen had to like, when she would go out for like her morning run in Port Moresby, um, she had to go with like an armed guard because her being a female police officer made her like a like a target. easy target. So Colleen um, decided to assemble like a smaller but stronger task force because she just recognized that there were a lot of like broken branches within this main task force. Too many cooks. Um, Yeah, exactly. Um, And then, you know, they had the difficult task of examining evidence from months ago um, and, you know, having real no leads to go on. Um, So they had the sketch description of um, of of the suspect, but as I said, like, people were like that could literally be anybody in the northern territory Mm -hmm. um the investigation became also really real for colleen because she went out into the area where um where joanne was Mm. and she got like obviously she had access to her mobile phone she's a police officer you know whatever but she got the people to drop her off in this middle of nowhere place and drive away and she was like that is when it became really real because i couldn't hear anything other than like the beat of my own heart and she was feeling really vulnerable and she was really mm-hmm. alone um so at this like this stage when Colleen was brought in um Joanne was back in the UK and obviously all of Peter's family were back there as well um and Joanne you know now had a really fractured relationship with the Northern Territory Police um same with the Falconios they sort of felt like that they hadn't done enough in order to you know 
figure out what had happened to Peter. Um, so Colleen ended up f- like flying to England to meet with Joanne and the, the Falconios and she knew that they had lost faith um, in the Northern Territory Police and their investigation. Um, so she spoke to Joanne, got her to recount her story again and from you know her telling her story, she was like, no, this woman is telling the truth. Like she is a very credible witness. Like she's very clear about what happened and when um, and that the real problem was a bad investigation. Mm -hmm. Um, So she had gained back the trust of Joanne, which was really, really, really important. Um, So 17th of May, 2002, like bear in mind, like this happened like July of 2001. A year ago. Like that's unbelievable. Um, the task force, the task force, got their first major break when they pulled over a guy called James Heppy, um, and he was a massive transporter of drugs from uh, Broome all the way down to South Australia, um, and he had uh, four kilos of pot in his ute. So he was facing like some fuck off serious like jail time, and he obviously started talking because he didn't want to like get in trouble so he mm-hmm. had said that he um had a business partner and he once saw this business partner making handcuffs out of cable ties and gaff tape identical to the ones that joanne lees had been found in um and then he also said this colleague had told him about um this colleague <laughs> this colleague um my co-worker had spoken my about, work like, wife not he this colleague hadn't said about disposing a body himself but had said you know if you weren't were going to dispose of a body you you know put them in a spoon drain what is a spoon drain you might ask i don't really understand it but it's like it's how to like clear excesses of water from like main stretches of road so it doesn't flood so it would be a really good place to dispose of stuff that you want to get rid of because eventually it would just get flushed away i guess um, and like then, a storm drain? Yeah, but it's um, a little bit... Different. Different. It's like smaller. And I don't know. Anyway, I thought I knew what I was talking about. I don't, but it's fine. Okay. Um, so, and then he'd also said that this person that worked with him, obviously during drug runs, had done a drug run that weekend. Um, and then when he'd gotten back, he'd said some shit had gone down. He drastically changed his appearance and his car. And that man's name was Bradley John Murdoch. So Bradley John Murdoch was born on the 6th of October, 1958 in Geraldton, Western Australia. Are you all right? <laughs> I'm freaking out. This entire story is just wild. I already like I, I already know this case, but I'm still I'm like, what? Am I like weaving a story for you? This is such a narrative. I'm so absorbed. <laughs> and like as soon as you just said like Bradley, John, Murdoch, I was like, let's hear about this Woof. motherfucker. Woof. Okay. So Bradley John Murdoch was born on the 6th of October 1958 in Geraldton, Western Australia. He was the third son of Colin and Nancy Murdoch. Um, he was described as being a bit of a nuisance. <laughs> oh, fuck me. Me Just too. a bit. <laughs> Just a bit. Um, so at the age of 12, um, his family and, and him, because he was a bit, you know, unruly, um, decided to move to Perth. But Bradley decided to join a biker gang. Easy. As you do. Uh-huh. At the age of 15, he left school, which is wild to me. Um, that was normal back then. Yeah, no worries. So then he went back to his hometown of Northampton. Um, he became quite known for his involvement with um, 
illicit materials such as drugs and alcohol and uh, guns. Um, after the death of his brother in the late 70s, um, he faced his first firearms offences. And then in 1980, at the age of 21, he received a suspended sentence after being convicted of causing death by dangerous driving after hitting and killer, killing, killering, sorry, killing a motorcycle driver. Oh, my God. So then he moved to Albany in Western Australia and became a mechanic because his father was a mechanic and he learned a lot just by watching his dad and became quite skilled in that area. Um, so he was visiting his bro- his other brother, Gary, and his um, Gary's wife, Pamela, in 1980, and he met Pamela's niece, uh, Diane. So within a year of meeting Diane, Murdoch and Diane were living together on the outskirts of Perth. Um, Murdoch... Uh, like owned his own trucking business um got into ended up getting into a bit of trouble uh and ended up filing for bankruptcy in 1983 so uh bradley murdoch and diane were married in 1984 and they had a son in 1986 um but shortly after the birth of their son bradley murdoch uh fell back in with the bikey crowd and began to um, become domestically violent um there's one incident where he uh hit diane really really hard and she was like yep we're gone goodbye so after that go diane, um, diane Rock on doll. Um, so after that, Diane and Murdoch um, didn't have any contact after that. Um, so Bradley John Murdoch was then offered a job driving uh, road trains up north and he jumped at the chance driving um, large amounts of pot and cash. Um, so he was basically like a drug mule. Um, Murdoch could drive up to 16 hours a day and if there were problems with the truck, he was the best one to have on hand because he was a mechanic, a mechanic. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so he went... About 15 years without, like, any brushes with the cops. He kept his head down. He was earning a lot of cash going back and forth across the country, fueled by drugs and alcohol. He used to camp in the outback to, you know, escape for days at a time. Um, By uh, 1995, he was living in a remote part of the Kimberley called the Fitzroy Crossing. Um, Really beautiful area. It's amazing. Um, He was working as a um, mechanic and also picking up driving jobs. Um, he became like increasingly threatening to, and really racist towards the indigenous people in the community. Um, rumors started floating around that there was like a KKK um, group developing oh. in the area. The really cooked, like, you know, he's done some really cooked shit and we'll get into that. Um, but also something really cooked about Bradley John Murdoch is he had a horrifically racist tattoo of a indigenous man on his arm, hanging by a noose over a fire with the initials KKK. No. What the fuck? What the fuck? Okay, so 1992 in Australia, right? Um, the High Court um, overturned this thing called Terra Nullius. Terra Nullius? Terra Nullius. Um, which was um, basically that Indigenous communities would be able to lay claim to sacred land. Um, so the Western Australian government, like, were trying to com- like combat this um, law. Um, and they were doing this new agreement by issuing like dummy freehold leases like all over the state. So um, Bradley John Murdoch got one of these leases and was going to build a petrol station. Um, but the plot was also earmarked for Aboriginal land entitlement. Um, and so when um, Terra Nullis was um, overthrown, Marbo, it's the vibe, um, he um, it voided all the dummy leases. That's a quote from the castle. I know. That's why I'm laughing. That's like my favorite okay, movie. But- such a good film um so that voided all the dummy leases for the area so he lost out on the land so he was pissed about it Mm -hmm. um so he began like 
blaming and terrorising um, ind- the Indigenous leader for the area, Joe Ross, who had been really vocally campaigning about First Nations rights. Um, so the 20th of August 1995, um, 500 local First Nations people were celebrating the win of the AFL team, the Magpies, rock on. Um, so Murdoch had been his at his local drinking spot and um, was stopped by a roadblock because of the party. And he was fucking pissed, pissed about it so he went home got all these guns and came back and then was shooting at people he didn't hit anyone or kill anyone thank god but like narrowly missed people um so in november of that year he pled guilty to owning and operating stolen guns um but he clarified he was like i just was wanting to scare them i didn't want to kill anyone um but like the indigenous community were obviously fucking outraged because um that he wasn't being like charged with attempted with a real murder crime because mm-hmm. yeah because he literally was targeting joe ross and his partner in mm-hmm. their car which mm-hmm. is fucked so he was sentenced to 21 months, served only 15 um, and being because he got let out on good behaviour. So after that, he moved up to Broome. Can you where where's Broome on your map? Is that really high up? Yeah. Yeah. High up on the left. High up. Left of the yeah, Kimberley yeah. Plateau. Mm. So he moved to Broome in 1998 and was working um, for like several trucking companies, still transporting drugs across the country, you know. Okay, cool. Um, and he was like expert at hiding drugs he had like secret compartments in the cars and all this shit um and he was um like constantly updating his car you know making it easy for him to like remain hidden from the police Mm -hmm. um he would do like really long driving um jobs and then you know would just pack up and go camping for weeks on end um so in 1998 he had met James Heppy and um who had moved to Broome to be a pearl diver um Heppy had moved into Murdoch's apartment and then um Heppy also told Murdoch about this property that he had in South Australia in this really desolate town called Sedan um so Heppy had a business out of Sedan sourcing and transporting drugs out of the area so you know Heppy and Murdoch were like happy as Larry they're like fuck yeah we found Mm. each other we're gonna like rule the world you know Mm -hmm. um you know like Brad Murdoch like knew so many areas of the country like really like vast areas of South Australia Western Australia and the Northern Territory Mm -hmm. like the back of his hands he knew back roads that he could avoid you know detection from the police police. yeah so you know business was like booming thriving you know okay so six days uh well like the 19th of June 2001 so this was before um Peter and Joanne had set off on their initial trip um on a remote stretch of uh road in western australia um this lovely like 22 year old her name was julie she was driving from perth to adelaide um and she noticed this like four-wheel drive like tailing her she'd had a lot to drink don't drink and drive um and you know the four-wheel drive like overtook her but like lit up the rest of the road which she was actually really grateful for so that she could you know get a little but she could get there a bit safer mm-hmm. next rest rest stop they both got off and like she had a chat with the guy and they continued to stop along the way together, um, you know, and they shared speed and alcohol and pot. Um, and then they agreed to, like, stop near the border and camp for the night. And they got chatting and, you know, Julie noticed, like, how, like, well-equipped this guy was. Like, he was, like, set up. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, Julie ended up, like, setting up swag and she told the guy that, you know, she was meeting a friend in Alice Springs and then they were going to drive up to Darwin. Mm-hmm. So the next morning, like, she mentioned to this guy that she was wanting to buy a gun. And he was like, oh, a gun? I got one of them. And, like, pulls out this pistol. 
and she's like, <laughs> um, so then Julie and this guy like parted ways. She was like, see you later. Goodbye. Um, so then Saturday, the 14th of July, um, Murdoch had arrived in Alice Springs. So he was on one of his typical drug runs, very mm-hmm. normal for him from South Australia to Broome. Um, he stopped in at the Red Rooster at Alice Springs. The most pumping place in Alice Springs, apparently. Yep. Everybody's just got to stop said, it. Peter and Joanne had been there. That'll come up again. Um, refueled his car. He went to the Bilo. Do you remember Bilo? Fucking love Bilo. Fucking Extra value loved. for you and me. Jesus, so good. I loved the one in Alderley. It was giant. Bilo was amazing. Bile, Aldi replaced Bilo. Yeah, but no one's ever going to have the same sign. Like that area of um, Alderley is so nostalgic for me. Mm-hmm. And now it's all tizzy. That giant fuck off Coles. Bilo was not tizzy. Bilo was very much like the working man's grocery store. Yeah. Um, so he went to the supermarket at 2pm to get provisions and then he said he left Alice Springs. Um, so going back to Peter and Joanne, so obviously Peter's gone missing and then um, the police have released that CCTV footage of the guy at the police station with the white service with the white car with the can- – oh, sorry, service station, not police station. I don't know why I keep saying police station. So that CCTV footage of this guy with the white four-wheel drive with the green canopy walking into the police station had been released to the public. So people were calling in and just being like, hey, that looks like old mate. And Again, a white ute, like, mm. in Australia. Oh, not just about the car, but they had footage of him, like... Oh, they, they had, had footage, footage of the guy. This, of the guy. I was about to say, saying, hey, we're on the lookout for a white ute is like saying you're out on the lookout for a white fucking person. Right. <laughs> So um, Murdoch started to receive phone calls from relatives after the CCTV footage had been um, released to the media. Thing is also, they figured out the model of the car, uh-huh. which was like a 91 to 99 model of a Toyota Land Cruiser. Uh-huh. And Bradley John Murdoch had been an owner of one of those cars. He didn't have it anymore though. Um, blah, 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 blah. So, so people were like, yo, Brad, this looks like you. Mm. So a few people had run into the police, rung into the police to say that they thought it looked like Brad Murdoch. Um, Broome police, on behalf of the task force, went and interviewed uh, Murdoch. Um, there was no official documentation taken on, beh- like taken on this interview, which is really fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said that you know he didn't have long hair. Um, and that, you know, he they, they felt like he didn't match the description that Joanne Lees had made. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he didn't also have – he didn't have the vehicle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, which appearances in cars can be get, gotten rid of, dolls. Like, mm-hmm. it's possible. Um, so, Broom Police gathered enough – like, gathered information about Murdoch from, like, around his, like, close acquaintances and, you know, his housemate and his girlfriend. Um, both of his girlfriend and his housemate would later reveal his absence during the weekend of the Barrow Creek incident, as it's called, um, and saying that he had, like, some really strange behaviour following that weekend as well. Um, thing is, which I find a bit cooked, um, he wasn't – there wasn't a DNA sample taken from him. Um, he was asked to, like – what is it? How do I – so he was asked to, like, submit himself for this thing – but it wasn't like, you have to do it. He was like, no, I'm not going to do it. But he did stay on the suspect list. Then, obviously, James Heppy gets arrested, right? Mm-hmm. And police had found out that 
um, Murdoch had fallen out with his brother, Gary. So they were obviously, okay, that's a way in for us to get a DNA sample. So they go to Gary and say, hi, can we please get a DNA sample to compare, you know, against the stain that they mm-hmm. found on the on Joanne. the shirt. Mm-hmm. So um, Gary agreed and they took the sample and um, they were able to determine that it was a partial match, which meant that the blood stain on, jo- uh, on, the blood stain on Joanne's shirt was a blood, blood le- relative to Gary. Mm-hmm. Then Gary, still being Gary, decided to warn... Uh, Brad Murdoch about the police coming after him. So then no, Brad Murdoch, yeah, Murdoch disappeared, and it wasn't until months later, in August of two thousand and two, that he was arrested for the rape and abduction of a murder, the attempted oh no, a supposed rape and abduction of a mother and daughter in South Australia. So this offence, separate to what had happened with Barrow Creek, was um, committed literally weeks after the attack on Joanne Lees and the suspected murder of Peter Falconio. Um, so Murdoch like subjected this poor mother and daughter to about a 25-hour orde- or, like, ordeal. He was like fueled on drugs and alcohol um, and then he finally let them go. And like some people were like maybe it was like a alibi sort of situation to get him out of the Falconio thing because that was obviously a oh, big deal. Oh, because it's so much better. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so... So obviously he's been arrested. Um, So that means that the task force were able to get a DNA sample from Murdoch. Um, So Colleen Gwynn flew down to Adelaide to interview him. And then in November uh, 2002, police flew to the UK um, to meet with Joanne Lees again and to show her photographs of of, of suspects, including Murdoch, you know, obviously in the hopes that she's going to say, yeah, that's him. Yeah, that's him. him. Mm Mm-hmm. So she was instructed to look at all of the photos, um, to take her time, and then she pointed at number 10 and she said, I think that's him. And number 10, Bradley John Murdoch. So, woo, rock on. So the DNA sample was sent overseas um, to Dr. Jonathan Whitaker, who was based in West Yorkshire. The thing with Dr. Whitaker was West Yorkshire. West Yorkshire. Um, he was a he was basically one of the leading scientists that was working on low copy DNA. So that means if you don't have like a full sample, you you're still able it. to adapt. Yeah, you're still able to extract the DNA and like get a proper proper analysis and match it against. So the thing is with the DNA that had been found in the combi, combi especially on like the gear stick and stuff like that, wasn't enough for them to get a full DNA profile mm-hmm. in testing in Australia because we just didn't have the equipment. Mm-hmm. And um, low, um, low copy DNA analysis really hadn't started until about 1999. So it was still really, really, really fresh. fresh. Um, blah, 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 blah. So, and the old, so one of the other main things that they were um, trying to get DNA from was the handcuffs. Now, the thing is, like, the longer you have, like, the longer you have a piece of evidence, and the like, the the longer it's been in contact with other pieces of evidence, like, things are going to get contaminated. It, it degrades not over anyone's time. fault. Yeah, mm. it's going to get contaminated and it's going to degrade. So, it's not anybody's fault. It's just what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but using the low, key, the low. I keep on saying low key analysis. No, the low copy analysis. It was on the down low. That it just like low key, like it was on the DL. Look, it's just a low key analysis. Um. Uh. But but but. So the low copy analysis. He examined the innermost layer of the tape that was on the handcuffs, the makeshift handcuffs, and it was found a hundred million times more likely to have come from Bradley John Murdoch. Mm -hmm. So after being found, he got found not guilty 
of the rape of and abduction of that mother and child. Ugh. Yuck. He was immediately arrested for the murder of Peter Falconio. So in May 2004, um, the committal hearing was being held um, to see if there was enough sufficient ev- evidence for, you know, Murdoch to go to trial. And the committal lasted about three weeks. Um, That's so what happened? Time. Yeah. Um, so what happened in this committal hearing, there was actually two people. Um, they were living in rural New South Wales and they were dead set certain that two, like one to two weeks after the Barrow Creek incident, they had seen Peter Falconio in like rural New South Wales in their service station. Mm-hmm. Um, their names were Robert Brown and Melissa Kendall, and they were working at a ser- they were working in a servo. And they said a man came in that they both recognised as the man that was missing in Darwin, and he was with another man and a dog in like a utility vehicle. And they noticed that he had a slight accent. The really sad thing was obviously like Peter Falconio's family were here for the um, the committal hearings and stuff like that. And Peter's mother and brother like couldn't handle this testimony. So they had to leave the court because, you know, at this point they'd probably come to accept that Peter was most likely dead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hearing these people just like saying, oh, no, we, we think we saw him. Um, so the police officer that took their initial statement um, made a joke about Elvis, like, you know, the sightings of Elvis and stuff like that. Um, and although this was labelled as a um, red herring, it also, like, fueled a lot of rumours that were going around that Peter Falconio had faked alive. his own death mm-hmm. because of money troubles. Because what had happened when he was in Alice Springs after he dropped off the combi at the mechanic, he had gone to see an accountant because he hadn't realised that he had to pay tax um, oh, no. in Australia. Mm-hmm. So that fueled a lot of the rumours of him faking his own death because of money problems. Um, then also something else came out in the committal hearings um, was that Joanne had had like a slight indiscretion with a friend of hers called Nick in Sydney. Um, they had met, they were hanging out um, and they had like a fling or something. And obviously the you know, the defense were going to jump on that and, you know, take that for what it's worth. Um, so during the cross-examination um, by Murdoch's defense lawyer, she was questioned as to like what had happened. And, you know, she was asked whether she had had a um, sexual affair and she, while she was living with Peter in Sydney and she said, yes, but I wouldn't classify it as an affair. You know, it was, you know, it a was, dalliance. It was, a it was over. It was mm-hmm. done. Yeah. Um, but the thing was, is that this guy, Nick, set up like a secret like hotmail account for her to email and pretended to be this girl called Steph. So she was still corresponding with him. But Not she didn't know. Anything. Oh, no, no, no. She knew that it was him. Oh, okay. But it wasn't um, It was so wasn't like anything. Peter didn't know. Yeah. So Peter didn't find out. It wasn't like the emails were apparently all innocent. Like, you mm-hmm. know. It's all good, doll. We all have our moments. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It just We've sucks that mistakes. your boyfriend got. It sucks that your boyfriend got murdered. Um, um, I hate. To, I'm not making light of this, by the way. This is a really, really dreadful case. Um, so it was decided from the evidence provided at the committal that a trial would commence in October 2005, and that it would run for um, eight weeks, and there would be 85 witnesses. Um, so during this trial, Joanne was a lot different in her attentions towards the media. Obviously, she had gone through um, – she'd probably have, like, meetings with people about how to better handle the media mm-hmm. and, like, to make sure that she was able to – Deal with it. You know, take mm-hmm. things and deal with it and stuff like that because it's really, really tricky. Like, I couldn't imagine – like, it's like when 
people become famous all of a sudden and they do really cooked shit. Like, you they know, you know. just don't know. You don't know. And she just didn't know. Um, so she was, you know, instead of just like showing up in like unmarked police cars and stuff like that, she was walking into the courtroom every day. She was greeting people, um, you know, and, you know, you know, she had, she'd had some training and some help in that area and that's not a bad thing. Um, so the morning of her testimony um, at the trial, um, Joanne uh, was told by a member of police that during her stay in Alice Springs after the attack, so this was way back in 2001, um, that her room had actually been bugged um, and that the excuse was that in case her attacker would get in contact. So obviously Joanne was furious uh-huh. but she was like no I'm going to like channel this to where I need it whereas I'm going to like help them convict this man mm-hmm. of what he did to Peter you know so um obviously Bradley John Murdoch being the top bloke that he is pled guilty I uh, pled not guilty um and this guy was six foot four and he was a tall six foot four and he like well, I don't know. I've met six foot four people. on, But as I said, like, I have some sort of complex about my height where I seem to think I'm really, really tall. You're not. I'm not. You're a short five foot three. Yeah. Five foot four? Oh, I'm five foot three. I thought we were the same height. Um, I don't know. We'll measure next time we see each other. Oh. Um, so, yeah. So sh- he was, like, in, like, towering over his, like, police officers that were mm-hmm. with him in the docks and he was in- really intimidating in the courtroom um the prosecution showed the cctv footage from the service station the night of the um that night that was further along from the attack um but the defense argued that you know it could, could have, have been, been anyone. anyone um the prosecution you know told um you know murdoch's history as like a drug courier and his boasting of being able to make you know handcuff handcuffs out of tape cable ties and duct tape um, several witnesses accounted for Murdoch's like radical changes of appearance and a ca- and car like from like since from when the, the attack, attack happened. happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, experts were able to confirm you know with the weather of what it was like because he basically just said, "There's no way I could have gotten from here to here in that much time." Um, you know that they said that the drive from you know Broome to Alice Springs could be achieved in 16 hours. Um, you know that the prosecution needed in order to have Murdoch on the Stewart Highway at the night of the attack. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Jonathan Whitaker um, confirming the DNA that was found on the ha- like the handcuffs and the shirt and on the gear stick. Um, so Grant Algie was the um, defense attorney. So he was arguing about the cross contamination, especially on the handcuffs, of um, you know them being in, being stored in the same freezer as like a known DNA profile of Bradley John Murdoch. So he was like, "How do we know that they weren't contaminated?" You know. Um, <coughs> I beg your pardon. Um, so then, um, you know, the defense's main argument through the whole case was basically like stuff could have been cross-contaminated um, and, you know, they shouldn't be officially used and stuff like that. And they were, you know, caught, like questioning the integrity of um, the people that took the um, the DNA samples. Mm-hmm. Um, so they also brought up, um, the defence also brought up like Peter and Joanne's like recreational use of drugs, including the night of the attack, um, you know, and Joanne, um, when she was interviewed about, the dog she got the breed of the dog confused because um murdoch's dog was like a dalmatian cross blue healer but then she thought it was just a blue healer but then the night 
the the roadhouse that she was taken to after the attack they had a blue healer and she said that it looked like that dog oh my god as if anybody could like eyeball a dalmatian cross blue healer like looking at it in a fucking car dog would look um so then the defense also argued about like the differences in the vehicle that joanne had described in the attack and the one that Murdoch had at the time of the arrest. And the prosecution reminded the jury of like the extensive changes that Murdoch had made to his vehicle and to his appearance. Um, you know, Murdoch argued that he didn't have like the compartment in the, cause you know, they were trying to like figure out how Joanne could have gotten from underneath the seat in like the front cab of the, um, of the, the ute and then getting in the back, but you know, who knows? And then they made Joanne, when she was, you know, questioned, I didn't bring this up earlier, but I just remembered, um, Joanne, you know, they were asking about the the cable tie situation because people mm-hmm. were trying to figure it out. Like the press in the um, the telemovie that I watched, like the, obviously that, you know, majority of it's based on fiction, but um, these people were arguing about like how she could have done it and they would in like in the pub, like trying to figure out how to mm-hmm. do it. And she did it in a full courtroom. Yeah, no, like you said that. Exactly you said that, that she, she was made that. to. Yeah, yeah. She was made to do it. She was made to do it. Um, bah, 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 bah. So then um, they also argued that like the police um, and the indigenous trackers weren't able to find any sign of Peter or the struggle. All they could find was um, Joanne's footprints. Um, the defense also argued that you know the DNA of Murdoch's that was found on uh, Joanne's shirt could have been through like a contact transfer. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, maybe something because they were both at the same Red Rooster. Maybe she brushed up against something, like. But and the prosecutor- out of the millions of people who have evidently gone to the fucking Alice Springs Red Rooster, they would have just. Well, no, happened- they were both there on the same day. But so were however many other hundreds of people. Yeah, exactly. That's bullshit, mate. But that's the thing. That's that's their job is to like implant doubt. It's very clever. It sounds ludicrous, but you know it. it yeah. Anyway. Um, but the thing was the prosecution were like, it's an actual like blood sample. Yeah. It's not just like a brush or like a, like, it's not like, I a mean, they didn't even know they didn't like even that. have touch DNA or anything like that in that in 2001. That wasn't yeah. known. I forgot to mention this lady's name. So her name was Beverly Allen, who was, um, Bradley Murdoch's girlfriend. So she spoke to the court about, um, Murdoch, like sitting her down and showing the newspaper clipping of the seat, like the picture of the CCTV, um, footage and like of the man that they you know they thought was of interest and he Mm -hmm. like she had said it sort of looks like you and he like sat her down like went through all of the reasons why it couldn't be him um but she said you know after watching the cctv footage she was like yeah there's just like something about it that makes me think of him like Mm -hmm. it was how he walked and how he held himself and then julie mcphail was called to the stand so the lady that i talked about um Mm -hmm. who had done the trip and where it was like eerily similar so she um was called to the stand and she had shared this campsite with murdoch and um you know told him of her plans to go to darwin in the combi um so you know from what she read of joanne's ordeal and like you know what had happened it's felt really eerily similar to what had happened when she was you know driving with murdoch beside her um and then obviously james heppy goes to the stand because you know um so he had said that he and murdoch had discussed the same cctv footage and he said he just knew by the stance and like the look and the mustache in the photo that it was definitely murdoch Mm -hmm. um so once heppy had gotten off the stand him and murdoch had this like massive well not massive 
um, you know, he was like, fuck you. And he's like, fuck you. And then the, the, the judge was like, all right, settle down, settle down. Mm-hmm. Like, the judge was like, simmer down. Settle petals. And that's enough, thank you. Um, so when uh, Murdoch took the stand, he was cross-examined really strongly by the prosecutors. He denied that it was him in the CCTV footage, but then he started to admit that there was similarities um, between him and the vehicle, and the, like him and his vehicle and the man in the CCTV footage and that vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, when he was explain- he was asked to explain the DNA on Joanne Lee's T-shirt, he wasn't able to. Um, and when police had gone through his belongings, they had found this hair tie with this silver clip on it that Joanne had lost in the struggle. Mm-hmm. And that was like wrapped around the gun, his gun holster. And when um, they presented it to him at trial, he like refused to touch it. So then closing arguments. I'm so sorry. It's been a long one from me tonight, hasn't it? Um, so the closing arguments, the prosecution was like um, – Murdoch saw Peter and Joanne and maybe like was scared that they were following him because he might have been a bit over anxious or freaking out um you know and then saw them on the Stewart Highway and then you know pulled them over and in a panic like killed Peter and kidnapped Joanne and then you know disposed of Peter's body and while Joanne escaped you know looking for Joanne he couldn't find her so he buried Peter in the middle of Australia with Peter's like head wrapped around um with um Peter's with Joanne's like denim jacket being wrapped mm-hmm. around Peter's head as to not get any blood on the car. Um, and then obviously Murdoch like altering his appearance to evade capture. Um, they urged the jury to dismiss any claims of corruption in the ways of um, like the DNA, like sampling mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, and that, you know, they were, they were to only come to one conclusion and that was to find Bradley John Murdoch guilty. Um, they asked to ignore the evidence of the sightings of Peter after the, the, after the attack with there being so many discrepancies because um, the people that had said they'd seen Peter, like one said that he had like sandy blonde hair. The other one said he had a shaved head. Like one said he had an accent. The other said, no, no, he didn't have an accent. And so there was just a lot of discrepancies. And there Somebody just saw some like, guy. Yeah. They were just like, yeah, that's a dude. You know, there was, you know, there was a DNA match and there was no way around it that it could be anywhere, anyone else's DNA other than Murdoch's. Mm-hmm. So then the defense get up and they're like, Peter Falcone affected his own death and police planted evidence with the help of James Heppy because whatever and there's no body and there's inconsistencies in Joanne's story and, you know, sometimes people just vanish and it's like, mm, okay. So then Judge Brian Martin was like, jury, examine the av- like examine the evidence best you can like that's why we got you in here like we don't just get in experts you're the one that's here to make the decision and you have to be satisfied with the evidence present to like come back with a verdict mm-hmm. so 13th of december 2005 jury spent eight hours deliberating and then they came back and they found bradley john murdoch guilty he was sentenced to 28 years without the possibility of parole um in the 28 years, obviously, and Judge Brian Martin said, I entirely agree with your verdict. Hell yes. Rock on. Hell yeah. Boom, boom, party till we die. Boom, boom, party till we die. So obviously, victim impact statements. There was one done by Joanna Lease, uh, Joanne Lease, and then there was one done by um, Peter Falcone's mother. I won't share his um, mother's one. I just thought it'd be interesting to hear from Joanne. Um, so we'll go from this. Uh, so the magnitude of the impact that this crime has had on me, my relationships, my family and friends is impossible to convey in this short statement. On the night this ni- on this the night this crime occurred, I thought I was going to be raped and murdered. I was terrified and extremely distressed when I was hiding as I thought I would never see my family again and no one would know what happened to Pete and me. I also left that 
Peter was, um, I also left that Peter was very close and that I couldn't do anything to help him. This made me feel helpless and guilty. I have suffered the loss of the person who knew me the best and loved me, loved me the most. Pete was the person who encouraged me to achieve and to be strong and to be a better person. He was the one I would travel the world with and share new experiences with. I was with Pete all my adult life. I was 22 when I met him. We looked forward to visiting places and sharing experiences with each other. In losing Pete, I have lost some of the opportunity to share my family life with the Falconios, such as, a sh- such as shared Christmases and family dinners. Pete was in the prime of his life, professionally successful, fit, healthy, loved, and popular. This crime ended our dreams of travel, marriage, children, a future. I never imagined not being with him and not sharing my life with him. Much of my life has been closed down since this crime happened. Um, I have had to delay university studies because of the requirement to travel to Australia to give evidence on two occasions. This has involved me being absent from the UK for extended periods. There have been related difficulties for my life in terms of employment. I have been been able to only take on employment which did not involve dealing with the public as people's curiosity has made my life very difficult. Prior to this, I had been working with an international travel agency, but I could not maintain that employment because of the notoriety associated with this crime. I have also been unable to make long-term commitments to employment due to the need for me to travel to Australia. There's also been obvious substantial financial implications as well. Some aspects of the investigative process were harmful and insensitive, as well as causing me considerable anxiety at a time when I had been through an experience that can only be described as horrific. The massive intrusion of the media into my life had also had devastating effects. I have had to move house eight times. I have experienced being on the train and seeing pictures of my face on the front page of people's newspapers. It's all so invasive. I have watched and I have been watched and followed. My mother was very distressed with all the media coverage and the impact that it had on her and me. People have had to be wary of becoming friends with me because they know they might find themselves in the paper. This makes forming new friendships and maintaining existing ones a continuing challenge. I have visible scars from the physical injuries I have received on the night. They are fading with me. The emotional scars, however, remain. I am stronger, wiser, less naive. I am skeptical, untrusting, fearful, and heartbroken. It is lonely being me. So, um, the 12th of December, 2006, uh, Murdoch appealed against his life sentence in the Supreme Court. Um, his lawyers lodged eight grounds of appeal. Uh, Murdoch claimed that the evidence of Lee's was tampered, uh, was tainted because she had seen a photograph of him on the internet before she was interviewed by police, as well as an article linking him to the murder. On the 10th of January, 2007, the Northern Territory Court of Criminal Appeal dismissed both limbs of the appeal. Uh, Murdoch then applied for special leave to appeal to the High Court of Australia. On the 21st of June 2007, the High Court refused to grant special leave under the Australian judicial, judicial system. Murdoch has now exhausted all opportunities of appeal. Subsequent to the High Court of Australia refusing to grant his application for special leave, there was media speculation that Murdoch would lodge a further appeal. He launched another appeal to the Northern Territory Criminal Court of Appeal in 2013. And then there was another development that I discovered as well. So you might remember from the case that I did, uh, Peter Dupas. And there was a gentleman who was involved in the conviction of Peter Dupas and his name was Andrew Fraser. And he was a formal, uh, he was a former criminal uh-huh, defense lawyer. Uh-huh. And he was in prison with Dupas and basically got him to convince to, uh, to uh, confess. Con- uh, 
to confess to the murder of Mercina Helvarkas, which was this massive high-profile case in, in Melbourne. Um, so Andrew Fraser and this marketing executive called uh, Victor Sussman basically believed that Bradley John Murdoch had Bradley John Murdoch had been uh, wrongly confused uh, wrongly convicted of the murder of Peter Falconio um and they basically they went on the uh the project um and let me see if I can find this it was really fucked up so meh, 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 are you going to work there we go um, what a fucking hill to die on right so he'd gone on the oh hello um got on the project which is like a like a nightly talk show in australia yeah so um hugh rimmington who was the uh the project thing um the project's journalist um basically was talking to um victor sussman and andrew fraser um yeah, basically about, like, this new evidence that they had and, like, saying that Bradley John Murdoch hadn't, um, like, you know. And then um, Hugh Remington basically found out that this um, claim was false. And he's like, you've been telling, like, lies about the evidence, haven't you? And then, you know, you've been working on the the case for, like, eight years. Isn't it time to put up or shut up? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Andrew Fraser's like, we're not far away. And Remington was like, it's been eight years. Like, what are, you, what are you fucking doing? And so, yeah, all of this, like, random shit. And then they got in trouble a few years ago because um, Bradley John Murdoch did an interview within prison and they didn't have um, they didn't have permission from, like, the, like, the main prison guy. So they got, like, the, the journalist that ended up doing the interview got, like, fined, like, $50,000 or something. Good. But, yeah. So that is the um, attempted abduction of Joanne, Joanne Lees and uh, the murder of Peter Falconio, whose body has never been found. Um, and Bradley John Murdoch at the moment is very, very ill. Um, so, Great. you know, n- you never know that maybe he might reveal where Peter is. I went on like a few twists and turns with this case um, because like, yeah, I really, I remember this image that we'll sh- I'll share on the socials and stuff like that of Joanne and Peter in their combi. Like they've both turned around. They look so young and carefree and they're having fun in their combi and they're about to go out on this massive adventure. So that like that image really stood mm-hmm. out for me because like obviously with the trial being in 2005, so we would have been 12. Yeah, I have no memory of this case happening. Oh, I was like... I remember, yeah. But yeah, um, so yeah, that's that's my first case for Northern Territory. I can't process everything that you've said. I want to say thank you to Case File. Amazing job, Case File. Case File, real good. I remember listening to that Love episode that. and being like, oh, I've been on the bus for 95 minutes. Um, I can't stop thinking about what you said, uh, the quote from Joanna and her thing where she said, the physical scars are fading, but the emotional scars... Oh, stay for a lifetime. Stay for a lifetime. Like... Um, I really recommend that telemovie, especially, I mean, this whole, like, trial by media age that we're in, mm-hmm. where people just, you know, someone doesn't act, and it's exactly the same what you said about Lindy, Lindy Chamberlain. Chamberlain. If, and it reminds me so much also of Amanda Knox, when they made this mm. massive deal about Amanda Knox, I'm going to buy lingerie She's just a weird girl. the night after the murder, just... but she was going to buy underwear because the police took all of her clothes and she had no underwear to wear. Like, the fact mm. that the media will just twist and I, you know, twist and turn to get whatever story that they want. Exactly. And look, I'll get an angry email about this, but I think it happens so much more to female 
to, to to women who don't act the way that people expect a woman to act they expect women to be hysterical exactly. and crying and weeping and all this shit and if a woman doesn't act like that in any way she's demonized um totally what happened with lindy chamberlain um yeah. and totally what has happened here and it's just bullshit like nobody you know there is no one set way for a person to act the worst in any situation how would you like the entire world's media to be scrutinizing how you react to the worst thing that will ever happen to you in your life you know Mm. like and just to be analyzing everything that you do when you're at your most emotionally weak and emotionally vulnerable i cannot imagine what it would be like and it's it's evil it's truly evil you know i think the media is super important and you know it's it's i do think it is important to communicate information about these kind of crimes and things like that but it's not all right no not at all you know to make assumptions about people based on their emotional response or something like that it's just it's just not right i am sad i'm sad same i can't like thinking about the fact that like peter falconi's body is just somewhere in the outback that nobody knows about is heart-wrenching. But it's just the really interesting thing about this case because obviously, like, I live in a world where I think I'm a bit black. Like, it's everything's black or everything's white. Mm-hmm. And, like, realising that the justice system isn't about necessarily proving someone, like, definitely didn't do it, but it's, like, just planting that seed of doubt in the jury's mind. Could be all it just takes. Like, mm-hmm. You know, like... You just have to give someone, like, an alternative theory uh-huh. and they could literally, like, you know, give an inch, they'll take a mile, you know? like Because the thing is, is that, you know, our whole justice system is built on the fact that if there is any doubt, you can't convict somebody. You can't convict. You know? Which I, like, yeah, Which I agree with. Wild. I do agree with. But also, you know, it kind of, you know, the stuff about the contamination of the evidence ever so slightly reminded me of, like, making a murderer and how, like, yes, all of that case yeah. is basically built on, like, is this was this evidence planted or was it not? And, you know, mm. like, we – nobody knows about that case definitively whether or not it was, but all it takes is that seed of doubt to have, you know, like, uh, opinion split, essentially. Um, and there is, you know – I mean, I think it's pretty fucking ridiculous to be like, yeah, they got the DNA because he was in the same red rooster – but, you know, the fact that it is totally possible and has happened in many other cases where there has just been some lab error or whatever and something has gotten contaminated. Yeah. You know, that's – that is – you know, it is possible and it is something that could create a lot of doubt in a jury's mind. It would probably create doubt in my mind if I was in a jury. Yeah, right. But holy fuck, the guy definitely fucking did it. But the thing – what I wanted to ask you about this entire time and you did touch it – touch on it a little bit oh god the, yep. the motive is a little that's the questionable thing. that that's um that was brought up um more so in the um, appeal that no the telemovie, oh, the movie, um, okay. sorry um was just that there is this sort of like lack of motive of like why it happened which is also like which is you know quite important when you're doing a murder trial mm-hmm. when you're trying to convict someone is you know motive means an opportunity yeah exactly or whether he, you know, maybe he was just, like, really paranoid and saw, like, Peter and Joanne and then maybe saw them at the truck stop or saw them driving and was like, yep, they're on to me. But if he's such an experienced drug runner and he's been doing it for such a long time, you wouldn't necessarily think that he would be so worried about being 
just yeah. seen by some you people. Think. It makes me You really think this is totally like this is totally like not based on fact at all, but it makes me wonder if there are possibly other crimes that he's committed that haven't been solved because well, it doesn't they, seem like um, a first or even a second it, go around. Yeah, no, they um they were trying to link him to a couple of other disappearances. Mm-hmm. So I know yeah. the timeline doesn't work. I mean, there's no way, but I can't remember the guy's name, but um the the episode that we did about missing persons in Northern Territory like it's it's like a it's a it's a it's just a symptom of the fact that the northern territory is so like isolated and there is kind of just like one big old road but mm. you know there there are quite a few people who have gone missing in the northern territory you know off the Stuart highway you know who are last seen at road houses and things like that that maybe you know yeah they yeah i just feel like you know just just going on you're just going on what you said like it just it just doesn't feel like it it could have been the first time thing I don't think so um and especially with his like history of violence and stuff like Mm -hmm. that I would say you know he fits a profile he does fit a profile that's terrifying yeah um I hope I did an okay job what a fucking great episode I'm shook (laughs) shook to my (laughs) core and I really want to try and see if I can get my hands from behind my back to my front (laughs) yeah oh my god i definitely tried this afternoon my ass is too big um so thank you so much guys for listening to our first episode for our northern territory season next up will be ellen do you know what your first case is uh no i haven't decided yet but i do want to say that the northern territory like is my most like i want to go there so badly i think i said this last time but it is my number one like bucket list place to go in australia it's the one state I haven't been to. Have you been to Western Australia? Yep. I used to go all the time as a kid. Why? Irish dancing. Oh, that makes sense. I've mm. only been on the East been Coast. Been to Rottnest Island. Been to Rottnest Island. Did you take a selfie with yep. a quokker? I have a photo with a quokker somewhere. Oh. I was like five or six. That's amazing. Um, yeah. No, I've never, been, I've never been further east than like, I mean further west than like Toowoomba, <laughs> I don't think. No, that's a lie. I went to Western Queensland. Anyway, um, I love the Northern Territory, and I think that the Northern Territory, like, if I was to ever write, like, an Australian, like, horror novel, it would be set in the Northern Territory, because I really think it has... Obviously. It has so many of the components that makes Australia a terrifying place, and I feel such a real sense of fear. Like, you know, when we did the episode about missing persons, and now, like, it's just so... It's so isolated and so, like desolate i know and it honestly looking at the footage of the stewart highway it's I was like, just fuck yep, all there's just fuck all i can't even believe she found a bush big I enough to hide like in we need a t-shirt that says australia the land of fuck all he says yes it's just yeah um, no amazing amazing yeah, job so good very excited so excited about ellen's first episode excited about 2020 new year new us we're kicking on with our um we're acknowledging our trauma we're going to work we're doing our therapy i'm very excited no bins 2020 no waste 2020 mm-hmm. keen 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 
Um, if you want to send us an email, you can at murderintheLandofOz at gmail.com. If you want to become a Patreon, the link for that will be in our show notes. Thank you all so much um, for the new Patreons that have been coming on for the end of the month. Um, we like really appreciate it. As we've said, all all of the money goes into supporting this podcast, supporting us, making sure that we can um, get our sources and you know pay for things, you know, rock on. Um, if you want to get in touch on the socials, we're Murder in the Land of Oz on Facebook and on Instagram. Um, yeah. Once again, guys, thank you so much for joining us this year. We know we've both been like heavy messes and the people that have reached out and sent us like sent us really lovely messages of encouragement and I wanted to everything say something. has been an incredible. I wanted to say oh, something. Yeah. Last last um, episode, we talked about something that uh, one of our listeners said. Lots of people write in and say like, oh, I feel like you guys, like you guys could be my best friend or I feel like we're friends and like I'm listening with friends. If you feel like that, we are your best friend. We are your best friends. Like, we are your best friends. We're your best friends. You can you can tell people. I always say to people, like, if I am, like, relating information that I've heard on a podcast, I always say, like, oh, a friend told me a story. <laughs> no, we... If, we're your friends. If you are feeling, um, as, as I acknowledge on our little Christmas thing, this time of year is really hard for everybody. I you know self-admittedly it's been really really difficult so if you do feel like you need that extra support please feel free to send us a message on instagram i'm on it constantly so i will 100 write back um we've really loved having you a part of our year this year obviously it's been a big transition with ellen moving to hobart and that was really devastating for like for me and i miss her very much i can't believe i haven't seen her in six months six months yuck um but yeah we honestly couldn't thank you guys enough for all of your support um, it's really awesome. So let's kick on to 2020 and have a fucking stunning 2020 year. 2020 okay, is going to be all of our years. We're in it together. We're in it together, Huns. Okay. We're being moisturized. I'm gonna, I'm gonna and have hydrated. an interaction with a man that's you know emotionally available, who actually likes me. Mm-hmm. He may or may not be brunette. We don't know. Positive interactions with other human beings. Positive interactions with other human beings. Two uh, K 2020. Love 2K it. Two K two zero. That's the plan. Two K two zero. All right, dolls. Thanks so much. Love ya. Happy New Year. Bye. So, what should I listen to now? We are Castology. This is our podcast about podcasts. We are your castologists, Patrick Shearer, Liz Best, and Zainty Weber. Each week, we'll bring you three of the best and sometimes not-so-best podcasts around. We'll also do the hard work and trawl the RSS feeds to find the newest podcast that should be on your radar. And then next week, we come back and tell you what we thought of the recommendations and bring three new sparkling podcasts to check out. Now, will we always agree with each other's picks? Probably not. But hey, you're clever. You know that's how reviews work. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcatcher of your choice. That's Not Kind of Productions podcast. Now that we're getting back on the road, the stops we make seem more special than before. Stop to see a friend. Stop at your favorite store. Stop at the places you missed most. And to keep you going between those stops, there's Shell. Stopping to fill up with our best fuel ever. Save with the Fuel Rewards program. And to get snacks and essentials that can save you even more at the pump. That's just a few of the ways Shell helps you make the most of the stop you need to make. See full terms and conditions at fuelrewards.com.